But I also want to give you a heads up for what we're going to talk about Wednesday because it seems like Wednesday nights are turning into I'm going to talk about doctrines that other people teach that are not right. Amen? And we might as well talk about it, right? Uh, I, I want you to understand that Galatians chapter 1 Verse 8 and 9 is where I'm going to take you just for a moment to give you what we're going to talk about Wednesday, okay? Now, I know this is strange, and I don't do this very often, but I want you to understand the reason why I'm doing it, okay? Uh, starting at, well, let's start at verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now, so I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that I have, then ye have received, let him be accursed. This verse is the absolute tantamount, paramount verse when we understand that there is only one gospel. Amen. There's one gospel. There's not three. There's not one way for the Jews to get saved and one way for Gentiles to get saved. Amen. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, which I just looked up and I posted on Facebook purposefully because we're going to talk about it Wednesday. God calls all men everywhere to repent. And Paul was talking to Gentiles in Thessalonica. He was telling them, you have to repent just like Christ told Jews and Peter and Paul and everybody told the Jews and Gentiles alike, you must repent and believe the gospel. Amen? There's only one gospel. And we're going to talk about that Wednesday. So I wanted to get that out of the way, okay? And there, there's a reason I do those things is because our church, it's my job as a pastor to guard against false teaching and to say that there's any other gospel than the one gospel that... Paul's talking about is, a, is saying that scripture is a lie, Paul's a liar, amen, there's only one gospel, amen, so we'll talk about that Wednesday, but tonight we're going to talk about the covenant being renewed with Abraham, amen, or Abram, he's still Abram, he hasn't become Abraham yet, okay, so he's still Abram, and that's where we're at, we're going to start, well, if I get my notes, I'll tell you. All right, we're going to start at verse 7, okay? Verse 7. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back over it. Amen? And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, 
and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took him all these and divided them in the midst and lay each piece one against the other. And the bird, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a low, and low, an hour, or excuse me, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, and behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed, I will give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenites and the uh, Kenizzites and the Kadomites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rothans, excuse me, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gerigites and the Jebusites. And that's the end of it. So we start here at verse 7. And I want to be very thorough in this, okay? Because there's some things being said here that are not said often in Genesis, okay? The name Yahweh, okay, is less prominent in the book of Genesis than Elohim, okay? Uh, Elohim is the word that is used most often. Anytime you see God, especially in the King James Version Bible, if it's just God, then it's Elohim. If it's the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, okay, or Jehovah, or as, you know, the Jehovah's Witness think it's J, okay? But the problem is there's no J in the Hebrew language, so it's Yehovah, not Jehovah. And an interesting fact, in King James English, the J didn't make the J sound. It made the Y sound, just for your information. In 1611, King James English, okay? Uh, anyway, so we start out, he says, he said unto him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, amen, that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as an inheritance. Number one, he gives him his name, Yahweh, amen, he gives him his name, and then he tells him, look, I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you all the way down to Bethel and Ai, and then I took you to Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt, right? Met you three times now, amen? 
Because this is the third time that God has appeared unto Abram. Now he tells him, not only did I bring you out of the land of the Chaldeans, he's telling him why he brought him out. He says, I brought you out for the purpose of giving you this land to inherit. Right? So the purpose that God even took him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans was to bring him here. So Abram, we talked about, uh, what was it, uh, Wednesday night, about verse uh, 1 through 6, how Abram was distraught that God hasn't given him an heir yet and God hadn't given him the seed of promise like he said. He's like, where, how, you haven't given me this heir yet. I'm an old man. Where is this heir, right? So God here is renewing the covenant. He starts out by telling him, look, I brought you all the way out here. And the purpose, the reason that I brought you here was to give you the land. Will I not do it? Amen? Now I want to read just a, a side note here that I wrote down. <clears throat> the Lord addresses the issue of the land. Here, Jehovah links his name and his past leadership in Abram's life to the promised land. He reminded Abraham that the same God who had brought him faithfully out of the land of the Chaldeans would just assuredly give him this land, which is absolutely what we see in the text, right? Now, everybody thinks that this is dull when we go, oh yeah, that's what the text says. But it's very important for us all to see the same thing, amen? I don't want everybody believing about 18 different things about this verse, amen? It's important that we get down to what does the Bible say, because here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say one thing to me and one thing to you and one thing to Carmen. Amen? The Bible has one story, one message, and there's one truth that it tries to convey. Not a whole bunch, right? It's not like, oh, I read this and I'm going to take it this way. And then I read this and I'm going to take it that way. No, there's a just exactly what God wants us to receive from the verse. And then there's opinion. Amen? So I don't want opinion. I want what God is intending to give us from the verse. Amen? So God reminds him that he was faithful to bring him to this land, and he will surely be faithful to give him the land. Now verse 8, he says this, Lord, how will I know? Okay, this is my paraphrase. But how am I going to know that you're giving me this land? In other words, Abram is speaking like a shrewd Bedouin businessman who wants some sort of assurance from the Lord that this will happen, okay? Abram is like from Missouri at this point, right? The show me state. You're going to have to show me, God. What, what, what is going to be the sign? Remember what the Jews asked? What's the sign of your coming? Remember what the disciples said? What will be the sign of your appearing and of your coming? Which is what he answers in Matthew 24, by the way. <laughs> For all my dispensational or post-millennial brothers, right? Uh, anyway, verse 8, he's asking, God, show me a sign. And then verse 9. It's very interesting. Verse 9, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time here on verse 9 because this is important, okay? And I'm going to read a little note from the King James Study Bible that I have, okay, uh, just for this. 
But verse 9 says, And he said unto them, unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, there's a note here in this Bible, the Holman King James Study Bible. It says, God proved assurance in the form of a solemn commitment ceremony. The heifer, she-goat, and ram were mammals later authorized for sacrifice in the Mosaic Law. However, this is the only time that three-year-old specimens is in the prime or or in the prime of their lives were used. The turtle dove and young pigeons were permitted for certain Israelite sacrifices, see Leviticus 5:7. The ceremony here differs from other sacred rituals in the Old Testament involving animals in that no animal parts were burned. Not one animal was burned in this See, we always think of this as an offering. But Abram is not giving an offering. God asked specifically for three-year-old cow, right? A heifer, okay? Three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram, okay? And then... These are what God asked for. He didn't say, I want you to burn them. He didn't say, I want you to write. He didn't say any of that. Now notice in verse uh, 10 what Abram does. And I'm going to go back to verse 9 in just a second. But we're going to, this is kind of linked, okay? Watch what he does. Verse 10, and he took him all these and divided them in the midst and lay one piece against another, but the birds... He divided not. Now this is what is happening. Abram takes this heifer and cuts it in half. And then he lays a half over here and lays a half over here. And there's a walking space between them. And then he takes the ram the she, or the she-goat and cuts it in half. And then lays it half against the other. Right below it. And he makes a line on each side of these halves. Takes the ram, does the same thing, and then takes a turtle dove and takes a, the, uh, one, what was the other one? Huh? A pigeon, right? Yeah, a young pigeon. And he puts it on the other side. So we have half, half, and a path in between. Okay? This is what's happening. Abram doesn't build an altar. He doesn't make a fire. He doesn't do any of that, right? This is because God did not command him to give them as an offering. He just said, go get them, cut them in half. Because this is not Abram giving a required sacrifice. Because the Abrahamic covenant was not based on giving a sacrifice. These pieces are being laid here. Because God is about to make a covenant with Abram. And I'll show you why this is important in just a minute. He lays them side by side with a path in the middle. And then Abram guards the offering until the Lord appears. Obviously God has left him at this point. He went to go get the heifer and the she-goat and the ram and the pigeon and the 
and the turtle dove, right? And God has not appeared unto him yet, right? This is very important. God commands Abram to gather the animals for the covenant ceremony. God's intending to make a covenant with Abraham, a commitment in a covenant that God himself is going to establish. And the animals are going to be the key to understanding the covenant. Okay? Let's continue. Verse 12. And when the sun was gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. I have another interesting note that I want to read to you from this King James Study Bible on this verse. Now, if you bear with me, we're going to go to all kinds of scriptures right now, okay? But verse 12 says, since the days were reckoned in the culture in that culture from sunset to sunset the events of verse 12 through 21 occur at the end of the day that began in verse 1 abram's deep sleep or his teradama recalls the one adam experienced when the lord created eve remember that in genesis 2 21 god said uh, or God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man when he created woman, right? He took a rib out of him and created he woman, right? Now, keep, I'm going to keep reading. This is going to get really good. And horror was Abram's reaction to encountering his encounter with the holy God. And this is seen throughout scripture when people actually come into the presence of God. It's not like it's not like we think of when we have all these great services where people are falling on the floor and jumping and shouting and oh I felt the presence of God in here. The reality of what we see in the book of Revelation when people are in the presence of God. There's four beasts, twenty and four elders. A sea of people standing before the throne of God. And every time that angel swings by and says, holy, holy, holy. All the four beasts, all the 24 elders, all the people on the sea of glass fall on their face. Throw their crowns before the foot of the throne of God. And sing the same song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. Abram is struck with horror at the presence of God. If you want a few verses for that, you can go to Exodus 33, verse 19 through 23. And Isaiah 6, 5, Jeremiah 4, 19, Ezekiel 1, 28, Daniel 8, 27, and Daniel 10 and 8. Now, Isaiah is very important, a very telling one. Remember what happens to Isaiah when he's sees God, woe is me. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips who lives in a land of people with unclean lips. Amen. This is his reaction to coming before God. It's not jubilation. It's not euphoria. It is absolute terror that I'm standing before the most holy being in all of the universe. 
and I'm a wretched sinner who doesn't deserve to be there. <laughs> Lastly, in this note, this note's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, just telling you, darkness is often associated with God's presence. You can go to Exodus chapter 20, which I'm going to turn to these verses, okay? So go with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, uh, was it 21? Yeah. Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, and the people stood afar off. Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see that? Now watch this. Let's go to a couple more. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here, let me put my bookmark here. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. Deuteronomy 5, 22. There were uh, these words the Lord spake to all your assembly in the mountain out of the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick darkness with a great voice and he added no more and he was and he wrote them in two in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me this is the recounting of getting the 10 commandments that Moses was up in the thick darkness where God was amen now, the last one, I believe, is in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, and there are more. These are just the ones I looked up for this, okay? Then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. So when I started, when I read this and said, and where it reads that Abram fell into, when he fell asleep, it says the sun went down and deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Why did God appear to him in darkness just like he did Moses, just like he did Israel, just like he did every time that he came into the Holy of Holies? It was a cloud that rested upon the whole temple, remember? Even in the tabernacle, when Moses built the tabernacle and it was done, when the Spirit of God landed upon the tabernacle, how did it land? As a great pillar of smoke, so thick you couldn't see, right? When the, when the Spirit of, when the, the presence of God came down on Solomon's temple, it is said that the, the Spirit of God was so thick that they couldn't even do their work in the temple, right? So I got to thinking, well, why? Why is God shadowing himself? And then I remember what God told Moses. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. Now, if I can stop turning past it, we'll be all right. Exodus 33. 
Let's start at verse 18. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Now notice this word Lord here in Exodus. That word in English is Lord, but in Hebrew it is Yahweh. The name of the Lord. Okay? He said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Why is it that God is hiding his glory, hiding his face, hiding himself in thick darkness? Because if a man would truly look upon God in the flesh, he would die. Jesus in John 1, let's flip to John 1. Or actually it's John in John 1, okay? John in John 1. We read this verse and we talked about this verse when we read this verse. No man hath seen God, verse 18, excuse me. No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John is telling you that no one, not Moses, not Abram, not Jacob. Now I know Jacob says, I wrestled with the Lord face to face, but what he saw was the angel of the Lord. What Moses saw was the angel of the Lord. What Jacob, uh, or, or excuse me, what Abram sees is the angel of the Lord. In other words, the incarnate or pre-incarnate Christ. Amen? That's who he sees. But he has not seen the full glory of God. Has not seen his face. Has not stared into the, uh, the depths of the pitch blackness that the Almighty hides himself in. Because if we would do that in our flesh, we would die. No one has truly seen God unveiled, but the Son who has always been with the Father, who is himself God. I want to read the note here on Exodus chapter 33 because there's a bunch of verses that we could go to and read more about this and I want to expand on this point for a very important reason about chapter uh, 15 verse 12 where this horror of darkness has come upon Abram okay so go back to Deuteronomy I'm going to read the note from Deuteronomy 33 verse uh, not Deuteronomy Exodus Exodus 33 my bad my bad there's too many Old Testament books flying around in my head right now I know, I got this light and everything. So on Exodus, Exodus 33, verse 20 through 23, they have this note. Scripture often speaks of potential dangers in an encounter with God. And they give you a ton of times in the Bible where it was very scary for the people to see God or be in God's presence. Okay. Exodus 3, 6, Exodus 24, 9 through 11, Genesis 28, 12 through 17, Genesis 
32-30, Numbers 17-12-13, Judges 6-23-24, Judges 13-22, uh, 2 Samuel 6 6 through 7, 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13, uh, chapter 19, verse 11 through 13, Psalm 76, 7, Psalm 133, Isaiah 2, 10, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, John 1, 18, John 14, 8 through 9, 1 Timothy 6, 16, all of these are encounters where they're telling you that you can't stand in the presence of God. It's not a simple thing. It's not a. It's not just a uh, like we see in charismania where people. Oh, I was in the presence of. Did you feel the presence of God today? Look, I felt the presence of God. Amen. I feel Him in my heart. I feel Him in my life. But the reality is, I have not fully seen the presence of God. And if I were to right now, I'd be dead. The only way I can go into the presence of God is with eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if I am not born again and given eternal life and I tried to go stand before God, I would be destroyed because of my wickedness. Amen. This is the reality of a presence of God encounter that Abram's having here. Amen. And I don't want it to be confused with what we think of as a, oh, I felt the presence of God today. Amen? Now, verse 13 through 16, God is promising the seeds return to the land of promise. And God intends to judge the iniquity of the Amorites and the, that are in the land. Amen? So let's go back and read verse 13 through 16. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. And they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Now, first of all, all of us, if we're Abraham, are going, Hold on a minute. I thought you just said you're making a covenant with me. What's this stuff about my people, my descendants, the seed going off to Egypt and living there and serving them? What's this all about? Right? We're like, hold on, God. Thought you thought you only done good for us. And no, he said he works all things for the good of them who are called according to his good purpose. He didn't say everything was gonna go good. He said he'll work everything for your good. Amen. The reality that God's making a promise, knowing and telling Abram, this is not gonna be fulfilled in your lifetime. How difficult, how difficult for us people to trust God if he said something like that to us. Yet later on in Genesis, he's going to be willing to give his only son, the son of promise, willingly ready to strike him down because God says so. That's how much Abram believed God. And it was accounted unto him. It's righteousness. Amen. Now, he gives him this horrible news that doesn't sound good to any of us. And also, that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Well, this sounds pretty good right now. Well, I'm going to judge them afterwards, okay? 
and afterwards they shall come out with great substance. Oh, I like that part too, right? We all like that. Great substance. Sounds good. Verse 15. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation shall they come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. Now, this is interesting. God is giving Abram a promise of a seed. First of all, he's giving him the promise of the seed. The seed's just going to go off into another land and be subject and afflicted there for 400 years. And then it's going to return. Why does this happen is the other question. He says, for the, for the uh, iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. Who are the Amorites? Y'all remember? Remember when we talked about this? Kyle, you know your genealogy, right? The Amorites are the descendants of Canaan. Remember that? Story of Canaan being cursed because his dad, Ham, looked on his father, Noah's nakedness, and, and Noah cursed Canaan. He said, cursed be Canaan. A slave and a servant unto Sham will he be, right? This is what's happening. Because the Amorites' iniquity has to be fully developed. And then God can send Israel back to judge the Canaanites. This is what happens when Moses leads Israel to the steps of the promised land. And then Joshua and Caleb take them into the promised land. And they begin to defeat the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the other ites that are in the land, right? Now, I want to close with this. I want you to notice the last part, because this is really important in the storyline of Abram's life. Remember last week how we talked about the promise of the seed grew? First, the seed was just a seed, and Abram was just the father of a great nation. He said, I'll make you a great nation, right? Then the second time God reaffirms the promise, now it's I'll make you the father of many nations, right? And the seed is like the sand on the seashore or the dust of the earth. It was the dust of the earth then, right? Then the third time it went, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And your seed is going to be like the sand on the seashore, and the stars in the sky combined, right? You see how this is expanding the whole time? Now, I'm going to show you that even the land promise to Abram is going to grow in these promises. First, he says, I'm going to take you to a land that you do not know, and I'll, uh, I'll give it to you, right? He's very vague about where the land is. And then, once... Him and Lot separate, and Lot goes over by uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram goes over by Mamre. God says, lift up your eyes. Look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. All that you can see is yours, right? All that he could visually see for as far as his eyes could go was his. Now here, it gets expanded. Notice what it says. Verse 18, 
in the same day the Lord made the covenant with Abram, right? Let's, let's finish. We've got to read verse 15, okay? We've we got, we got to read all the way up to it, right? Uh, verse 17 is where we left off, right? And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Okay? I want you to understand why God chose to pass through these pieces. I'm going to read you a little note here on verse 18, okay? The second explicit covenant in the Bible between God and a person is established here with Abram, obligating or obliging God to provide the patriarch with a seed and a geographic inheritance for them that began with the south of the river of Egypt which is the Wadi of Arish, or the Sharor River, the eastern branch of the Nile in Egypt's Delta region. Now, this understanding of why he passed through these pieces is this. Number one, God is saying, if I don't keep my promise, I'll be just as cut asunder and destroyed like these pieces of carcasses laying on each side of me okay this is the meaning behind it god is saying I, I i will cut myself asunder like these and then he's telling by going between them he's confirming the covenant amen saying i surely will do it lest i be like that amen now notice what happens now it's not just what he can see but he's getting the land from the euphrates river all the way to the nile river okay you can't see the nile from the euphrates river it's too far for you to visually see okay so you see how the land now is even expanded that abram's people will have it's not just what he could see on that little plain on the uh, uh, western side of the Jordan River. It was all of this area now, from the Nile to the Euphrates River. And then he names a bunch of other lands that are all in this area. Notice where one of the lands are. We know where the land of Canaan is, right? That's right where... Bethel, Ai, all those places are in the land of Canaan. Amen? Now watch this. He says, uh, The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto the seed I have given this land from the Egypt, from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And, uh, excuse me, unto the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, and the Kedomites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Ramites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gargazites, and the Jebusites. He's given him all of those lands. And that is all the lands encompassing that whole area on this side of the Jordan River, starting at the land of Canaan, all the way down. Amen? That's the land that he's promising you. And that's a lot bigger 
than where he stood by Mamre and he could see as far as he could. Couldn't see that far. Visually, people might be able to see about, what, eight miles, 10 tops with their bare naked eyes and a flat ground, right? This is a lot more land, amen? Every time Abram's faithful, the promise gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when he's finally done, when he, when he does the last thing, when he real, readily offers up Isaac, God says, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And I don't know if you understand that, but that's the whole world, right? All the nations of the earth means everyone, everywhere. Amen? Abram's promise is, is so vast and so enormous. But he still continues to talk to Abram about his seed. And he uses a singular noun all the time. Why? Because that, that seed is not a new seed. It's the same seed that was promised in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden where God said, And the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. And Paul links this seed to Christ and him being the seed. And then we read in Hebrews where if we are, if we walk in faith in Christ, then we're heirs according to the promises of Abram because of Christ, the seed of promise. Amen. The realities that this story has with the rest of the Bible, with the rest of of the covenant of redemption is massive. Amen? And to think God is promising, first of all, the, the predicting the, the, the exodus, the, the trials. He had no idea who Joseph was going to be. He didn't know that, but we know that, right? Know that Joseph is the one that ended up bringing Israel into Egypt. And then they, the king died and the new king took over, new pharaoh took over, who didn't know Joseph, didn't know all the promises that the other pharaoh had made, probably didn't care, right? But the reality is through all of that, God was faithful to his covenant. Amen? That's why in Christ, understanding that God is the one that makes the covenant and not us. We're not, it's the covenant's not based on what we do. It's a good thing. Because if it was based on what we did, we would be just like Israel, just like the former covenant, where we would not be able to keep it. Amen? This is the hope of Christ, that we have a God that made the covenant for us. What did Jesus say? This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. God, once again, made covenant with man on God's terms without the need for man to do anything. To be a partaker of it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are so faithful. 
to what you do. And God, we know that he that began a good work in us will be faithful to complete his work. Lord, that you would not leave us without hope, without help. That you have sent us the spirit, a comforter, a teacher who will guide us into all truth. Lord, you have given us your written word that we might hide it in our hearts, that we might learn by it, that we might teach its precepts and its commands to our children, that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Lord, that everything for life and godliness is in Scripture. Everything that we need to know to come to faith in Christ Jesus can be found within the pages of Scripture. Lord, tonight we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and strengthen our spirits, that you would build us up in our most holy faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live by faith, that you are a covenant-keeping God, and that you keep your promises. And if you said it, you surely will do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.